Hi there, everybody. We'll get started in just a moment. Welcome everybody to the Julio's Liquors Metro Wine Tasting here in Westboro. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Cassandra. I'm the wine director here at Julio's in Westboro, your virtual wine director for the last 20 months and now hybrid. We do have some folks in our studio audience today as well. Um, so tonight we're going to be taking a look at winter wines uh, for your holiday table. So um, one of the things I love to do is always venture out. I love the traditional pairings like Gamay for Thanksgiving and um, our Beaujolais Nouveau. Um, but for me, sometimes not everyone likes those particular fruit flavors. Not everyone likes the, tame, the same style soups. Not everybody likes the same style um, vegetables, candies. Everybody has their own flavor profile. So um, there's a lot of delicious wines that can go along with uh, Thanksgiving Day meals. Um, and we have Manny Gonzalez here from Horizon Beverage with us. Uh, Manny and I have worked together for a little while, over five years. Yeah, now. five or six years. Yeah. Um, I met him back when I, my restaurant days and Manny came to me and he was new to his uh, portfolio and I was new to wine and we just started tasting through and found some beautiful properties that one of which I'm still tasting that we're tasting today, uh, the Barda Chakra from um, Argentina. It's a Patagonia uh, Argentinian uh, Pinot Noir. So a traditional uh, varietal, but from an untraditional area. And I love doing that type of stuff. I love finding these little pockets that Mother Nature can cre just create these really, really beautiful wines. Um, so the wines we have tonight are the uh, uh, a Pinot Blanc from Alsace. We have a Pinot Noir, like I said, from um, Argentina. We then have a Rioja from Spain. Sorry, it's my guilty pleasure. You guys know that. <laughs> I have to sneak one in there at least once a month. And then um, a Brui, which this is a Gamay, but it's not a Beaujolais Nouveau. 
And so Beaujolais Nouveau, we're going to discuss that a little bit, kind of what um, that particular wine is, and then what the grape is, and how you can experience maybe the grape in a different style. Um, and then, of course, you know, we'll talk about a little bit of food. I can't help but do that. So without further ado, Manny, take it away. Awesome. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is really uh, different for me to have the headset on, but I'm going to just roll with it because I'm a professional. Uh, so my name is Manny Gonzalez. I work for Horizon Beverage Company. Uh, not that you care who I am. You're here to drink. So we'll get to that in a second. But if I don't go through my routine, I'll forget what I'm doing. And I'll say, um, far too many times. So I work as an international wine specialist, uh, focus on France and Spain and Southern Hemisphere, South America, and sake as well. And one thing I've noticed throughout the years of being in this industry, and Cassandra sees it, I'm sure, a lot on the floor, it's Thanksgiving, it's Christmas, or it's New Year's Eve. Um, what do I pair with dinner? I'm going to a friend's house, we're celebrating the solstice, or, we're, or you know, um, you know it's, it's Hanukkah, what do we pair with our, our food? And it's a very common question, and oftentimes it's a question that really riddles a lot of people and gives them a lot of anxiety. Well, it's actually quite easy pairing food and wine, and wine and food. We're going to uh, kind of go through some of the process that I go through, and we're going to talk specifically about the wines. I want to spend just a couple minutes talking about the concept of pairing wine and food, if we could. So uh, there are some myths about pairing wine and food. One you can't have fish and red wine unless it's Pinot Noir and salmon. Otherwise, it's against the law. And who would ever have white wine with a ribeye? Well, I can tell you right now that I have. I have as well. And I have a great pairing, which is Chablis. It's fantastic. Exactly. It's beautiful. And so. Also with burgers. Oh, that's the best. Yeah. It's, it's so good. It's all about that mouth cleansing mm. feel. And that's what, what great white wines do. So if, if we can go to the next little slide there. Um, so one thing to think about when you think about your Thanksgiving dinner, for example, or if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, um, any big celebration meal that you have, you have a melange of flavors. There's salty, there's sweet, there is bitter, there is umami, which we don't talk about very often, but that's what steak is. Uh, mushrooms, uh, you get a little bit of an earthy flavor from greens. Uh, you know, there's, there's a whole slew of flavors that you, uh, want to pair when you're building your, your, your menu or you're selecting wines for dinner. Uh, so we can go to the next one. Um, one of the main things is acidity, that mouthwater feel. You're, uh, there's a couple different things about it. And first of all, food and wine pairing is not science, although there's some science behind it. And it's not really an art either. It's more either intuition or preference. But what acid does, it makes your mouth water. And when your mouth waters, you break down proteins and fats and it helps you digest more. It's exactly what happens if you are hungry and you smell a burger, your mouth starts to water. And it's not watering because it's just that you're hungry. Your body is preparing digestion. And I know that's not always the most pleasant conversation to have, um, but that is exactly what wine is really meant to do. So wines with acidity makes your mouth water, which is why Chablis and a marbly ribeye works so well together. Um, another thing we talk about oftentimes is weight and intensity, matching um, not just flavor profiles, but weight of your dish and your wine. So a 
wine that is heavier, the wine that maybe has a little more alcohol to it because weight and alcohol are related, uh, or in a dish that has a much more rich, complex flavor can oftentimes work better, but also contrasting flavors can create almost a dance. So um, white wine and a stew. And I'll explain why this works. So think of, of northern climates and areas of the world where it's much colder. They don't have light, delicate salads, especially in the wintertime. They need food with a lot of fat to it just to survive the winter because it gets so cold. Um, and what they drink with that are crisp, minerally high acid white wines. What do people in Savoie have with fondue? They have white wines. They don't have big, rich, heavy reds. The other side of it, in the Mediterranean, when it's, where it's warmer, where it's hotter, where the wines, either white or red, naturally have more body to it, more volume, or a little richer, they typically have direct flavors. So grilled meat, grilled, uh, that's a bronzino up on the screen, grilled with some near to avola, which is a rich, heavy red wine from Sicily. Actually, a great, great producer. Uh, so sometimes creating that contrast works really well when you're pairing food and wine together. Um, and then for red wines, we'll talk about more specifically when we get to red wines would be tannin. That's that mouth pucker feel. So what is tannin? It's basically there are these. Um, it's basically the chemical that's on naturally on the skin itself. So if you were to take a grape and you were to peel the skin off the grape and just eat the juice or the or the pulp of the grape. It's gonna feel sweet, but it's not gonna have a lot of texture to it. If you eat just the skin, you're gonna, your mouth is gonna pucker. You have them together, you create the balance. And so with red wine, because we, the red wines are getting their color from the skin, not from the grape itself, it's getting it from the tannin, which is on the outer skin. Also wood is a component to it. Uh, and for a lot of, and I'm not gonna just New World wines, I like a lot of wines from, from the New World, from California in particular, but, because the wines are sweeter, uh, the wines typically lack a little bit of acidity, the tannins are much more relaxed. And so a lot of New World producers will add what's called uh, wine tannin, which is basically uh, an additive made of vegetables to create that same mouth pucker feel. But this is really important when we're talking about red wines and oftentimes red meat, because it works as almost like a hook or an anchor. It pulls the flavor in. So when you have, let's say, ribeye once again, which we already established is great with Chablis, um, it's great with Cabernet Sauvignon, it's great with Bordeaux, it's great with Nebbiolo from, uh, from Italy. I had a ribeye last night with San Josef, which is a Syrah-based wine in the Northern Rhone, and the tannins hook in a lot of the flavor. We can go to the next next one here. But most importantly, it's really about just drink what you like. I've said this several <laughs> times before, over and over again. Appease your palates, your palates, what you want. You have the ability to give your body what it likes to eat, whether it's someone else cooking for you or you cooking for yourself. So never shy away from what your favorite pairing is. We do a lot of studying. We look at all this stuff and we look at, you know, what things pair well together. But at the end of the day, you guys don't like it it's not a good pairing for you well, so exactly and, and part of our role is to taste as much as possible and the more you taste the more your palate changes the more experience you get with wines that you, you know you may never get the taste because it may never make its way into the store because you know cassandra is kind of the gatekeeper and she's finding wines that work 
best for this area and for the demographic of the store and ultimately for everybody in this room. But if it doesn't pass muster, it's not going to make it into the store, right. you know, and so that definitely changes your palate. Um, so without further ado, let's jump into the first wine. Uh, this is a wine called, um, well, the producer Zinubrecht. Zinubrecht comes from Alsace, France. Uh, Zinubrecht is one of my favorite producers and a beautiful, beautiful history about it. But let's look a little deeper and where this wine comes from, because one of my favorite words for wine, first of all, is terroir. Terroir really just means earth, but the concept of terroir is really giving that wine a sense of place, an identity, um, something that is unique about it that, that only happens where those grapes come from. So we are located in, uh, in Northern France, not far from uh, the German border. We're pretty high north in the same way that, that Champagne is pretty high north. We can go to the next one. But what really creates the climate here are this, is this mountain range called the Vosges Mountains. And because the Vosges Mountains protect from the kind of cooler, more damp climate from the northwest and, and North Atlantic, um, it creates what's called a rain shadow. A rain shadow is basically the mountains stopping the fog, stopping the rain. And because of that, Alsace is the driest climate in France. It's not the warmest climate, it's the driest. And because it's the driest climate in France and it gets a ample amount of sunshine, the grapes can develop full ripeness without receiving the heat that they might need further south or in places like Burgundy or in the Mediterranean. So you end up getting a wine that has a very intense, aromatic, almost perfumed quality to it, but you still get a wine with a lot of acidity. We can go to the next one. Um, another unique thing about Alsace are the soils. There are 13 different soil types in Alsace. It's some of the most complex soils, other than I think like Ribera del Duero, which is like 40 different soil types, right. something ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but usually when we talk about Burgundy or Bordeaux or Napa Valley, or Argentina or, or Mendoza, we're talking about maybe two or three different soil types. There are 13 different soil types. And one reason is something called a graben. And a graben, think of it almost like a souffle. Millions of years ago, the um, pressure in the earth put, built basically a mountain range. And then water came through and then this area was somewhat underwater at a certain point, the water receded, you still had a mountain there. And then there was a geologic depression. And basically, like the depression in souffle. And so you had this um, indentation that created the Vosges Mountains and the Black Forest in Germany, the Vosges Mountains in France, and the famous wine regions of Germany, the Rheingau or the Mosul, and Alsace in France are all in this depression. But in Alsace, they are all on these steeply terraced slopes. So if it does rain, it doesn't happen often, but if it does rain, then uh, all of that rainwater goes right down to the rivers and you get a very intense aromatic perfume style wine. So this is a really cool winery, just a backstory on it. Zinnumbrecht is a connection of two families, the Zin family and the Umbrecht family. Uh, the winemaker's name is Olivier Umbrecht. He is a master of wine. Uh, he's kind of a maverick in winemaking in that he is very hands off. Um, he doesn't inoculate with any yeast, meaning that actually all the wines we have today are, are natural mm -hmm. yeast, uh, open top fermentations, which 
basically yeasty sugar, and that's what creates the alcohol. Oftentimes, winemakers will add specific yeast strands to their, their fermentations to get very specific flavor profiles or aromas. He lets whatever is in nature happen. Uh, these wines are not just organic, they're biodynamic. And for those of you that don't know what biodynamics are, uh, this was a movement of viticulture or of farming, really, that started in right after the Industrial Revolution. There was an Austrian um, philosopher, clairvoyant, he actually created the Waldorf School. Uh, Rudolf Steiner had realized that people were basically just getting sick during the Industrial Revolution. People that were living in the cities were getting sick often or they were, they, were, they were dying at a much younger, earlier rate. And so what he decided to do is to look back at what his family did centuries ago and how they farmed and started adapting those processes in the wineries. And one of those are those little bull horns you see up there and or cow horns rather actually, because cows represent fertility and the horns represent um, it's part science, part voodoo. So the horns <laughs> represent uh, an antenna to the, to the cosmos. But what they put in those bull horns is poop, cow poop, basically, uh, manure. But as it sits in those horns for about six months, it creates this very intense fertilizer that they use in the vineyards. They also use quartz in those, uh, silica, and they use that to help refract the light when it gets too sunny. Um, but these are techniques that were used centuries ago. And it could seem hokey, but I've never had a bad biodynamic wine in my life. Some are not my style, but they're always, always right. good. And fall under the drink smarter, not harder category. Exactly. Sometimes when you drink wine, it, it, part of the reason why you don't go back to it is not necessarily, maybe you didn't, and you weren't necessarily feeling right as you were drinking it throughout the glass, or maybe the next morning, it kind of hit you a little bit more so than you expected it to. And I find that, you know, some of the biodynamic wines, some, and typically most of them are, are uh, dry farmed as well, mm -hmm. um, um, which to me creates less sugar and less sugar always is less headaches the next morning. That's your compass. If the sugars break down into alcohol, then you won't have as bad of a morning the next morning. Mm -hmm. And I find that you can really bring out a lot more flavors in some of the wines. And like um, Manny was saying with a winemaker who has a really hands-off approach to it, um, you really get to see, you know, I like to see what mother nature likes to create each vintage, even though I go back to producers that we always goes, we always go back to the same producer, or the same wine each, uh, after each year. But if it's a natural wine, then you're not getting used to those same flavors all the time because nature is creating different flavors each year. And that's kind of what I get excited about, about some of the biodynamic wines. Exactly. And Olivia is great at that because he lets nature do its thing. It's not natural wine and that there is sulfites in the wine. Um, obviously they're naturally occurring sulfites and sulfites are added just to stabilize, help stabilize the wine. But when it comes to allowing fermentations to stop, it stops when they feel like when it's ready. So he has wines that have been fermenting for a year and a half and usually it's three weeks. Uh, we've had vintages that we've, we haven't received his Riesling because it's not ready yet. We'll get it in two years. You know, everything is aged in oak barrel. The wine's not oaky at all. It's fermented in oak and it's aged in oak. Uh, but the oak he's using, as you can, see, you can see, are larger barrels. They're actually really beautiful, but larger barrels and they're super old. And because they're older barrels, you're not getting any of the, uh, the oak nuance. The oak is really there just allowing oxygen to come in, integrate with the wine itself. So 
Um, this is 100% Pinot Blanc. This is, as I mentioned, is aged in oak, but it's not an oaky wine at all. Um, what do you guys think of the of the wine? Screams cheese? Absolutely. Well, one of the classic pairings is actually Munster cheese. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so because they, they do a lot of Munster here, but Brie works really well. We can go to the next one. Next slide. One of the things that I like with Pinot Blanc too is um, uh, spicy food. Because spicy food, like we were talking about before with contrast, spicy food is a volume is a volume flavor. It has a lot of volume to it, or it can have a subdued volume. Sweetness is the same way. So for me, what I like to do with spicy food and some some wines that have a sweeter note to them, if you eat the spicy food and then you were to take the sweet wine, it actually calms the spiciness down. And it's like you're experiencing that spicy bite for the first time each time. I don't know if anyone has, I'm very sensitive to spicy food. I didn't start as a young kid eating it. So I'm just getting into it now in my adult life. And it's an intense flavor for me. So for me, um, I don't know if anyone else has gotten this with spicy food, but as you eat it, you kind of lose some of the flavors because your tongue gets very reactive to all that heat. And with the Pinot Blanc, it kind of, like I said, relaxes everything. And then you really get to kind of taste the full meal. And it's a really nice way to enjoy the um, like spicy sushi or a Portuguese fish stew, yeah. something along those lines would be delicious for. Absolutely. And, you know, kind of think about when you go to a, a Thai restaurant, for example, and you get a spicy dish, it's typically a, a good amount of not necessarily sugar, but there's a sweeter flavor to that dish naturally because it, it basically is a contrasting flavor or, or maybe not flavor because you know, it's more of a sensation or a structural thing, but it really helps relax some of the intense heat and that heat relaxes some of the sweetness as well and you create a really good balance. We can actually pour the second one if, you, yeah. if you're ready. Um, but we'll just talk a little bit about some of the pairings. So you were mentioning brie works really well with this. Uh, one of the classic cheeses from Alsace is Munster, not the uh, packaged sliced Munster, but like real funky, stinky Munster cheese. It's actually a pretty mild flavor, but it definitely has a pungent aroma. Works really well with wines from Alsace. Uh, that is Chicoute Granit, which is basically a potato um, and uh, with sauerkraut and sausage. And that may not look like a heavy dish, that is wicked heavy. Uh, that sausage is super fatty and oily and really delicious and salty. And wines like this really help cleanse the palate. Um, I forgot what that's called, but that is one of the classic pastries. Um, this is not pizza. It's their version of pizza, but they use bechamel instead of tomato sauce. Um, with some local cheese and ham. Uh, that is like a tartatan. And ultimately, charcuterie. And I guess... My whole point, instead of going to the other wines, would be if you can find a wine that works with charcuterie, you'll find a wine that works with any meal. Because you think about what's on that charcuterie plate, you have salty, like if you have olives on it, you have vegetables oftentimes. If you do a little bit of a crudite, you have um, obviously cheeses, ripe cheeses, salty cheeses, sweeter cheeses, uh, smoked meats, cured meats, which are salty and oily. And if you find a wine that, that is great with charcuterie, you'll find a wine that is great with every, every single meal. What do you, what's, the, what's the thought on the, the, 
the Zoom-Umbrecht, or what we call DZH to be fancy. You think it would go with a spicy tofu and fried rice? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Pinot Blanc too. I, I always find a challenge with vegetables, grilled vegetables or raw vegetables. And Pinot Blanc, because it's not as heavy as Chardonnay is, but it's not as citrus forward as maybe like a Sauvignon Blanc would be, but it has something to it, which is a little bit more than like you would get from a Pinot Grigio, which falls right in that line with vegetables. They're not a high volume flavor. They do have a texture to them. And so this is something, especially in my restaurant time, you'd have folks who come in who maybe don't partake in, in, you know, the meat portion or the protein portion of the meal. And so for that, what you're looking for is, well, how are they going to gain that savoriness? And how are they going to get kind of those complexity of flavors? Because for me, and I've said this a couple of times on these, but, you know, sometimes you don't want to cook a huge full meal and you just pull out the Elio's pizza in the freezer or whatever your frozen pizza is of choice. <laughs> and then you maybe grab a nice bottle of wine to make it a little bit of a better night. That's, in, you know, with a maybe an $11, $12 muscadet uh, or, you know, white wine from Loire Valley, you go and you get a bunch of delicious seafood and oysters. So you don't always have to have, um, you know, financial value in both things that you're enjoying, you can actually toggle and kind of bring out flavors and different things. So oh, there's a, a friend of mine has a, owns a restaurant in Brookline. And he was saying that, you know, this couple that came in and they drank some uh, 1995 Lafitte Rachel, which is one of the most famous Bordeaux producers, that wine probably cost them a few hundred, well, probably $800. <laughs> and they had it with burgers, you know, it used to happen at the people's kitchen all the time. We had the um, the Citizen Burger, which had the bacon jam and the, which if anyone gets bacon jam, put it on a burger. It's <laughs> phenomenal. And then some arugula sometimes, and then you'd have a um, grilled tomato and then some foie gras with that pretzel bun. And you have a lot of, so there's a lot of kind of mild flavors going on there, but then you add this beautiful Burgundian white to it and it likes fat, thick skinned white varietals. They like fat. When I went to Oregon, it was a uh, fried soft shell clam um, uh, crab event and Chardonnay was the pairing. The What's the white varietal in champagne that goes with fried Chinese food? Chardonnay. That's the grape that they use for it. So that this this these style of whites, these heavier whites like Pinot Blanc and all those things, they like fat. They, they want to break it down and they want to make it better. Exactly. And one cool thing about Pinot Blanc too, if you are a Chardonnay fan, uh, so Pinot Blanc is a mutation of Pinot Noir. Uh, Pinot Noir was first. Pinot Blanc came afterward. Pinot is the family. Noir means night um, in French. Blanc is white. Gris is gray. So Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio actually has like a slight almost gray purplish color to the outside. Um, but Pinot or Chardonnay rather is a mutation of Pinot Blanc. So they are there. There is a relation to them. Although over the years, Chardonnay's developed more acidity than Pinot Blanc typically has. But these are ones for someone that likes Chardonnay, but you have someone else that's coming over that likes Pinot Grigio. They're all related. And this is a kind of wine that would work really well because it has a viscosity. It is a richer wine. It's very complex, but it's not oaky. And sometimes people that don't like Chardonnay, all they think is the oak. Chablis unoaked, but are, are mostly unoaked. So you know, Chardonnay can make some really complex, beautiful unoaked wines, but Pinot Blanc is a really good stand-in for that. We can... What do you guys think of this wine? 
Ben? You guys ready for some Pinot Noir? From Argentina. From Argentina. I can't do things traditionally. It's just not my MO. <laughs> it's not how I roll. So Bodega Chakra, I'll tell this guy's story in a second, but this is called Barda. Um, Barda means the ridge, and this is from an area called Rio Negro in Argentina. We can do the, the next, um, next slide. So we're more familiar with the famous Mendoza, um, right up against the Andes Mountains. Uh, the Andes are a pretty uh, formidable mountain range. Uh, they are very long. It's around, I think, 8,000 miles. Uh, they're not wide, but they there's a well, it's the longest mountain range in the world, and and definitely the largest mountain range in the in the um, Western Hemisphere. But it plays a real key role in creating the wines of Argentina and Chile. Uh, so um, we have that mountain range going north to south. In Chile, it creates a very temperate, moderate climate. Almost they would call it Mediterranean, but the climate's been there long before we used the term Mediterranean. So it's its own climate, but um, it creates a very mild growing region for a lot of the wines. But in Argentina, it has that rain shadow effect. So we get, um, we don't get a lot of rain in Argentina. It's almost uh, semi-desertic. In fact, Mendoza is like a high plateau desert. There's not a lot of rainfall. You get a lot of sunshine and you get a very intense contrast between night and day. Our days get really warm and Mendoza, at least the nights get really cool. Um, we can do the next one. So this is Rio Negro right up over here. It's in the upper um, Rio Negro. So it's the highest elevation, but we're only about a thousand uh, feet above sea level, which seems like a lot, but most of the wineries in Mendoza are around three to four, 4,500 feet above sea level. So imagine harvesting grapes on the side of the White Mountains. It's you know, somewhat similar, <laughs> um, but the soils here, like Alsace are really unique soils. Uh, they're called alluvial soils. And these soils are created from the rivers, from the mountains when uh, they're landslides, um, because mountains were created over millions of years, um, coming up from the earth and being pushed up from the earth. In fact, the case of the, the Andes, it was two plates colliding, uh, which formed the Andes Mountains. Uh, you have a myriad of different soils in Argentina. And a lot of those come from either rivers or they come from glaciers. And it's something called the alluvial fan. And if you ever get the chance to go to Argentina and see the mountains, you can see it. It looks like a pyramid coming down and you can see where the soil started and how they end. It's, it's really amazing. But it also makes it challenging as a winemaker to plant vines because every 10, 15, 20 feet in your vineyard, your soils are completely different because you're basically planted on riverbeds that were at one point landslides, um, but it makes some super, super awesome wines. We can go to the next one. And what other place has a lot of different soil structures that also grows Pinot Noir? Can anyone tell me that? That runs down a hill? Burgundy. They always describe Burgundy, I've never been, but they always describe to Burgundy for me, if you were to stand in a row of vines in Burgundy, you'd be in sandy soil. And then you go two to three feet over and you're sinking in mud. So it's, it's you know, sometimes it's not always the climate that um, winemakers are looking for when they're planting vines in certain areas. Sometimes it's a soil structure. And it's interesting to taste this for me because I drink a lot of non-Argentinian Pinot Noir. I drink a lot of domestic or French Pinot Noir. And to have a different 
uh, climate, but to have, you know, different soil structures, but also different from burgundy, it really, the, the grape itself takes on a completely different flavor profile, which is one of my favorite parts. Yeah. Well, and you had mentioned earlier, uh, one of the, uh, over there that uh, you talked about tofu with, with, you know, fried rice. Um, for me, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Pinot Blanc, they're kind of like liquid tofu. Mm. Wherever they grow, they're really going to adapt that, that character, that personality, uh, depending on the, the soils, the climate, the sunshine, all of these things are big factors. Now, the climate here, I mentioned, is, is relatively cool. Um, you don't get really past 85 degrees during the summertime. So imagine when we're going through our heat waves and it's humid there it's dry and 85 degrees and the nights go down to around 45. So once again, there's a big shift between day and night that uh, cold weather creates a lot of acidity and the warm, or I'm sorry, the, the, the moderate but dry sunny climate creates a lot of fruit structure and which is what creates this beautiful wine. Now, one of my favorite things about this wine, it's a really great story, has to do with that bottle on the top left. That's a wine called Sesakaya. Sesakaya was created by the uh, Della Rochetta family in the 1950s. Um, uh, the Marquis Della Rochetta had gone to uh, Bordeaux, had found some clippings of, of Cabernet Sauvignon from Lafitte Rochelle, which I mentioned earlier with the people that had with their burger, brought it back to uh, Tuscany and planted uh, Cabernet Sauvignon in an area called um, near Laverno in the northern part of Tuscany on the coast. Now, typically they would grow Sangiovese. This is the grape we see in Chianti Clasco. We see it in um, uh, Brunello de Montalcino. Further south, you see it in, the, in a wine called Morlino Descansano. But on the coast, if you've ever had Morlino Descansano, they're nice wines, but they're not amazing wines. They're just really good, easy drinking, kind of quaffable yummy wines, but they're not complex. And so he had the mindset, like the climate is somewhat like um, Bordeaux. You know, we think of the Mediterranean as always being intensely hot, but you're also surrounded by water. So there is a moderation to the temperature. It is a little more humid where they're located. And he decided he wanted to grow Cabernet Sauvignon and created the wine Sasakaya, which is one of the most famous super Tuscans of all time. And it created the super Tuscan movement. Uh, his grandson, Piero, um, didn't want to be a winemaker, didn't want to be involved in wine, went out to California. And then one day he was talking to a friend of his and he's like, yeah, maybe I do want to make wine. But if I want to make wine anywhere, I want to go to Burgundy. Well, the problem with Burgundy is that Burgundy is kind of set in stone. You can't build more vineyards. You can't buy vineyards. It's a challenging thing about Burgundy, but it's also kind of cool because if you want to buy, let's say, a Grand Cru Burgundy, like from the vineyard of Clovisio, real famous vineyard for Burgundy, you can actually find a map and it'll show you where every single parcel is and who owns what vines. Everything has been mapped out for centuries in Burgundy. So they don't really need new producers. So he was in New York City. He was at a blind tasting and they were tasting Pinot Noirs and he tried a Pinot Noir and he was like, this is Gevry Chambertin. Gevry Chambertin is one of the most famous uh, villages in Burgundy. This is 100% Gevry Chambertin. This is one of the most amazing wines I've ever had. It turned out to be a Pinot Noir from Patagonia. And his mind just was blown. And because he's winemaking royalty, he said, well, I'm going to go to Patagonia now because that's what you do when your grandfather creates Sasakaya. And he found this winery. He found some vineyards. Uh, one is, well, he found two real important vineyards in Patagonia. One is called 32, 32, 
when it's called 55, 55, because the vineyards were planted in 1932, in 1955 to Pinot Noir. So it wasn't the answer to the movie Sideways. It wasn't an answer to you know, the popularity of Pinot Noir. The climate here was suited for Pinot Noir. And that's what he ended up creating. Um, the wines are also biodynamically farmed. Um, uh, they're uh, Demeter certified biodynamics. The um, Zinubrecht is biodynamically farmed as well. Uh, I mentioned earlier, but it's not Demeter. Demeter is the, the organization you find within the United States and you see it through Europe. Demeter is specifically all um, agriculture. So you can have biodynamically farmed grapes for wine, or you can have biodynamically farmed onions. Uh, Biodivine, which is what Zinumberg does, is specifically wine only. He actually sits on the board of that to create the laws. Uh, but this is Demeter certified. This is all state fruit. It is biodynamically farmed. It's a lot of natural fermentation. Um, not all the grapes are from those 90-year-old and 70-year-old vineyards. The average around 25 years, but you do get some of that fruit. That's pretty historic. And what I love about this wine, like Zinumbrecht, every vintage is different. And sometimes as a consumer that just buys based off label, um, like I love the, label, the yellow label champagne or, or the blue label Prosecco, that, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. And it keeps all of us in business. Um, but what they do, which is different, is they allow, as we're saying with Zinumbrecht, the vintage to tell the story. And so there's sometimes I've had the wines and it smells like Burgundy. There's sometimes I've had the wines and they smell Tuscan. Um, and sometimes I've had the wine and I don't know what it smells like. It's just beautiful. And that's kind of the, the beautiful art, art of these wines. What are some thoughts on the, on the Barda? Yeah. Yeah, there's a very beautiful perfumed aromatic to it. And there's almost a little bit of like a reduced um, aged balsamic character to the wine. Yes. Yeah, it's going to be definitely on a dry style. There's not a lot of oak to the wine. It's around, it's a mixture of stainless steel, concrete, and oak, but they're um, kind of blended together. So you're looking at around an average of about eight or nine months of oak in the wine. Once again, like the Zinumbrek, the oak is not there to make the wine oaky, which we'll see in the next one we'll talk about in a couple of moments, but it's really there to allow oxygen to come integrate with the wine and really help neutralize some of the acidity relax some of the acid um, and give the wine a rounder structure to it. We can do the next one. And what I really love about this wine is that this is not meant for uh, steak. We think of Argentina, we think of Malbec, and we think of steak. Well, they don't really do a lot of steak here. What they do is a lot of fowl. They do game, which is venison. Um, they do rabbit stew. They forage mushrooms, and they have a lot of saltwater fish from the Rio Negro. So um, these are the kind of things that they pair with with their wines. Uh, so once again, thinking about holiday table where you have a myriad of flavors, you know, when you're thinking about what am I gonna pair with the turkey? Well, when you're going with just the protein, it's kind of a blank slate. You just at that point, pick what you like. But sometimes it's really about picking something you think is gonna complement all the flavors. So cranberry, um, thinking of one of the flavors, a kind of tart, slightly tannic flavor. This is something that would pair pair really well.
to it. And with a Pinot Noir like this, sometimes starch for me has a texture, but it's not as heavy and fatty as proteins are. But I still need a little bit of texture to be able to cut through some of that starch and sweet potatoes, mashed potatoes. I don't know if anybody else does this, but my family does this with mashed turnips. They do. Yeah. I highly suggest it. it's delicious. A little bit of brown sugar. It's fantastic. A little bit of cinnamon, um, preferably cooked from or uh, grown from a garden that's local because that's the best way to do it for Thanksgiving. But um, Pinot Noir for me, I used to always pair Pinot Noir with fish. I used to pair it with salmon, Arctic char. Um, it goes really well with monkfish, especially if you're doing it with risotto and you have maybe some blistered tomatoes or spinach. Blistered tomatoes and spinach, they have a sharp flavor to them. They have a bitterness that kind of ends on the back of your palate. A white wine for me doesn't always finish very heavy on the back of my palate. So those two things would kind of separate from each other in a pairing. A Pinot Noir, something like this, this I feel on, I can definitely taste it on my back palate. And so that's really going to um, kind of balance any bitterness that you may have at the table. Some people like fresh cranberry sauce. Some people like the canned cranberry sauce. What is the difference between the two of those? the skins in the cranberry sauce itself. They add a texture. They add kind of a tannin like you see with wine. But for me, as someone who has a very sensitive back palate, sometimes I can taste that kind of very tart, bitter skin from the cranberries themselves. And I don't get that in the sauce. And so this pairing with a lot of fresh stuff that you have for Thanksgiving is really going to balance all those flavors. And turkey, Sometimes you need a little help getting the saltiness from the gravy and all those herbs that you add into it. This is going to do that hand in hand. It'll just pull all those flavors out and excite them. Absolutely. You know, when you think of also texturally on your palate on you know, at Thanksgiving dinner, you have all these different textures between, um, you know, turnips mm. or squashes, um, obviously gravy and how thick do you make your gravy and do you add mushrooms to it? And I always put mushroom in my stuffing with prosciutto. And um, you when know. does anybody else eat creamed onions throughout the year? Anyone? Tuesday. Does anyone just get a hankering on a Friday in the summer to be like, you know what, I'm going to have some creamed onions and some, <laughs> and some green beans. But creamed, the creamed onions with this Pinot Blanc, the creamed onions with this Pinot Noir, these are things that would go with something like that because it's a balanced flavor. It doesn't have high volume of necessarily anything. And, and that's exactly what you want to be at with when you're um, at the Thanksgiving Day table with that. Absolutely. But seriously, like when does anybody eat creamed onions other than Thanksgiving? I know. They don't do it. You know, and a big part too, um, I was actually contemplating coming up with a little music playlist and then playing it throughout <laughs> as dinner music. Um, so I do, I, I had the link up earlier, but I, I do a podcast with one of my colleagues uh, where we, it's called Bottom of the Bottle. You can find it on Spotify. And we basically talk about the world of wine. And um, we've done Alsace. We did Zinumbrecht. We did Rioja. Uh, we did Argentina. I actually had the Barda with me for that. And the last one we did was food wine pairing. Uh, we always pair music with each episode uh, with a specific artist that correlates with what we're doing. Um, and I found with that one was really challenging because I wanted to find something, a real cool song that nobody really knows, but I don't want it to take over what we're doing. And ultimately, the, the, the point of the holiday table is not the wine. It's not the food. It's mm -hmm. it's you all, and to find really good wines that are that are good values, or um, you know special wines that have a story. You know, I would be more than happy, I guess, to have uh, Grand Cru Burgundy at four hundred dollars a bottle on my holiday table if I'm not paying for it. But <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna take away from 
the people that I'm with. I don't want to pay attention to, to them or my kids talking about school. If I have a wine, if I have a glass, that's $150 in front of me. Um, but when you have wines that are good food wines that are great values, they should elevate the conversation. Like they should elevate the food and like the music you're listening, listening to should kind of elevate everything, but it should never take over the people that you're, that you're with. Uh, what do you think of the, of the Pinot Noir? Yeah. yeah, exactly. When I was in the restaurant, um, I had this, I've, this is, this bottle, like I said, has followed me for a, a couple of properties. And I think there's bottles of wine sometimes that can give you a feeling. And I think that some bottles of wine can make your shoulders relax. And then there's other bottles of wine that make your whole entire body relax a little bit. And I think for some reason, that's what I always get off of this wine because it almost like the fruit kind of hits the front of your tongue kind of powerfully. And then those dusty tannins kind of relax everything. So it just, it gets you excited at first and then kind of relaxes you a little bit. Um, and I like the fact that it doesn't have a high volume of that cranberry flavor, the red currant, the pomegranate. They're all subdued. They're all integrated, kind of like a really nice, well-made um, sauce. You know, if you take tomato sauce and you don't let it sit as someone who has started cooking for themselves, I don't have any patience and I didn't let it sit. And then I grab some to eat and then let it sit on the, uh, grab some sauce to eat and then let it sit on the stove for a little while longer. A couple hours later, went back and tasted it. And I was like, that's what everybody was meaning. You have to wait for all the flavors to integrate. Mm -hmm. And this is a really beautiful Pinot Noir that integrates that from a completely different place than we've experienced before. Yeah. And a really cool backstory. So I mean, for me, this is, I think with all these wines, they all have a, a very cool story. And the storytelling sometimes is shouldn't outshine the wine, mm. but it should it should at least mirror the complexity and the, and the beauty of the wine. And this is a really cool story. You ready for some Spain? I'm always I know, I know you. I'm are. always ready for Spain. Spain is my favorite. So love Spain. We are now going to. It has my heart. I can't help that. I spent. I was five years of my wine career and. A lot of what I talk about every day, which is comparative tasting like we're doing here, I learned that concept with Spain because I had, you know, um, guests coming into my restaurant who were looking for a Cabernet and I didn't have that. So when you're tasting, you have to kind of try to find Tempranillos that give you that experience that Cabernet does. And throughout that is kind of where I started exploring some other regions like that. And there's plenty of wine out there for us to explore and we're only getting started. But Spain does have my heart. I can't yeah, help that. Absolutely. And for me, it was a similar story, but it was with Italy, with an Italian restaurant in Boston. And the same thing. I like Napa cabs. I like California Pinots. Um, someone once said that I want a wine with high tannin. So I gave him some Barolo. And Barolo is, you know, Nebbiolo from Piemonte. One of the most tannic wines you could ever have. One of the highest acidic wines you can ever have. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't feel like it, but one of the heaviest wines you can ever have on a cool vintage uh, Barolos can get to about 14 and percent alcohol because they develop a lot of sugar naturally. And he looked at it because it, it's a very, it's a, it's a light, it's not thin skin, but it's a very light pigmented wine. Mm -hmm. So when you look at it in the glass, it looks lighter than the Pinot Noir we had. It's kind of this slight grayish or not grayish, but brickish kind of color to it. He's like, this is going to be super light, like Pinot Noir. And he couldn't finish it because there was so much tannin and it was so heavy. <laughs> it's like people that, and not to bust on California, I love California wines, but um, people that talk about tannins 
from with California cabs have never had Nebbiolo before. Right. Because it makes that California cab taste a little bit like Beaujolais Nouveau. The one I thing I learned that. in red wine is looks can be deceiving. Yes. So always have an open mind when you're when you're going into it. Because a winemaker style too, sometimes you know, you can get used to your eyes help you get used to what you're used to eating and drinking. But with wine, you don't always get the same thing. Intensity like you have like with a crayon where you take a crayon and you really rub it into the paper or you do it lightly. That doesn't necessarily with the color of the wine, you see that all the time. Like he was discussing with Nebbiolo and how it's a little bit lighter and has this garnet color versus um, some Pinot Noirs that you get from Oregon, which tend to be a little bit darker and almost you can't see through them. That doesn't mean there's another grape added to it. That only has to do with the way the terroir, which he was discussing before and how the skins were grown throughout that vintage and how they texturalize the wine and really how they uh, take care of the fruit and, and um, uh, bring kind of a, a complete thought to the wine. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interpretation as much as anything else. So the winemakers looking at those grapes and will decide, you know, not to get into the minutia, the boring part of, of wine, but you know, how you let your skin soak with uh, the juice, Mm. you know, of the, of the grapes. If you do it at a colder temperature, you're going to get more color, less tannin. And think of it almost like getting a stain on your clothes. You put, you dab it with cold water because it lifts the pigment, but it doesn't remove your fabric. Well, it's the same with grapes. If you keep your temperatures cool, you extract more color, but you leave the tannin on the skin. Mm -hmm. But traditionally in Italy, in Spain, in Burgundy, uh, you don't do that. You let the temperatures just kind of do their natural thing. And so you don't get a lot of color, but you get a lot of tannin and a lot of, a lot of structure to it. Um, but now I'm super excited about this wine too, because Spain is also in, in my heart, as is Burgundy, as is Italy. Um, but, but in particular, Rioja, it's one of the regions that I first fell in love with. Um, first and foremost, so people understand that Rioja is not, doesn't mean Spanish red wine. Um, it is a region, and most people know it's a region, but it's a compound word. There's a river in uh, outside of, right next to this winery, actually, called Oja. And in Spain, it would be the Rio Oja, or Rioja. And I'm not sure why the region actually got its name from Rioja, because it's not an important river. It's pretty small. But just north of it is this Ebro River, which is this huge river we'll talk about in a sec, because it really creates the characteristic of this wine. So where are we in Spain? I circled Navarra as well, but uh, Rioja has a kind of the darker orange there. And um, like the rest of the wines we've been talking about, we have, we can do the next slide, we have kind of a little rain shadow around it. So we have um, the foothills of the Sierra Cantabrian Mountains to the north, we have the Pyrenees to the east, to the south, we have the Sistema Iberico, which is another mountain range in the center of um, Spain. And that creates uh, almost a rain shadow. So our climate's relatively cool. It's kind of a moderately continental climate, but we get a little bit of cool air coming from, from the North Atlantic. We can go to the next one. Um, and we get some really cool soils. So we talked about alluvial soils with the last wine. We get that in Rioja. And why these are important here, they're actually more like river stones because we have the Rio Oja, we have the Ebro River, which is basically kind of intersects just above where the winery is located. Um, those stones in the vineyards act as uh, shields from heat. So when it gets too hot, they absorb the heat from the day. And just kind of geeky science fact, between 55 degree, 54 degrees and 95 degrees, 
that's when plants develop photosynthesis. If it gets too hot, the grapevines shut down. And so what these stones do is they absorb the heat during the daytime in the same way they might do in the Cote de with Chateau of the Pop. They absorb the heat during the daytime and they release it at night. So you have a very moderate cooling effect or warming effect in the evening. Uh, we get a lot of uh, chalky soils. Uh, this is part of the Ebro Basin. So we have limestone that creates a lot of finesse in the wine. So the alluvial soils give structure. The, um, the limestone gives finesse, minerality, and the iron soils give health to the vine um, as well. We can do the next one. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. Finca well, the winery is called Finca Lampertris, uh, which translates to the farm of the empress. The wine we have is called El Jardín de Lampertris, which is the garden of the empress. Um, the woman to the right there, your left, looking, uh, her name is Maria, Ontejo, uh, Maria Eugenia Montejo. She was the last empress of France, although she was born in Spain. The gentleman in the middle, his name is Napoleon third i don't know his first name or but just napoleon the third they were married he actually created also the 1855 bordeaux classifications um for all the, the classic wines in in bordeaux but when he passed away in 1873 she moved back to spain and she found this little plot of land about 300 acres in a town called uh baños de rioja which are basically the baths of of Rioja because of the Roman baths that were there when, the, when Rome had taken over Northern Spain. And uh, she dedicated this winery to single vineyard wine production. And that's really unique in, in Rioja because typically you're getting grapes from different regions, different vineyards um, throughout the region. So you might be in uh, one village, you might be in the next little uh, region over or sub-region over. This is all one plot. It's divided into two parts. In the south is where they do their reserve wines. And in the north is where they have their, I don't want to say entry-level wines, but their, their crianzas. Um, this is a blend of Tempranillo, which is really the heart and soul of, not of Spain, but of the center part of Spain. You know, we always think of Tempranillo as being the Spanish varietal, and in many ways it is. But you see it in Rioja, you see it in Urbe del Duero, um, in Toro, where it has its own little uh, mutation, and you see it in Castilla-La Mancha in the center of Spain. But outside of that, you have a myriad of different varietals. One of those is Garnacha or Grenache. Uh, Grenache is the same grape you find in the Cote Rhone. You find it as the main grape in Chateau at the Pop, um, but it is a Spanish varietal. So we have some Grenache in here or Garnacha. Uh, there's a little bit of a grape called uh, Matura Tinta, which is just indigenous to the area that adds color, and a little bit of a white varietal called Viola. And if there are any fans of Cava, you might recognize that grape as Macabeo, as Cassandra right there likes it, um, but Macabeo, which is a white varietal. And why do they add white varietals into this wine? Well, it's actually quite traditional to do it, but they're not making a white wine, blending it with red wine. They are co-fermenting, so they take their their Tempranillo, their Garnacha, the Metora Tinta, and they add in a small amount of this white grape and they co-ferment them together. Um, but what it does, and I don't understand how this happens. Um, once again, I'm not an expert. I'm just in a jacket and that's about it. But um, it makes the color more vibrant. I don't know how it happens, but it gives the color a pop, a lift. And this is the same thing if you've ever had Cote Roti, for example, from the Cote Rhone, 
they add typically, or they co-ferment a little bit of Viognier and it lifts the color to it. But it also gives the wine a little more acidity and a little bit more of, um, of an aromatic as well. Um, we can go to the next, next slide. I'm sorry, what was that? Food parents? Oh, we're gonna get there in one, in one second. Um, just because I have a really cool slide. So um, they're a really interesting producer. They're actually two brothers that purchased this winery in the 90s and they've maintained it as a single vineyard production, which is really unique, as I mentioned in Rioja. Uh, so much so that Rioja is reclassifying how they make wines. So when you get a wine that just says Rioja, there are three main subregions. You have Rioja Alta, where this winery is located. It's the highest elevations in Rioja. You have uh, Rioja Alavesa, which is the coolest um, area. And then you have Rioja Oriental or Rioja Baja, it's what it used to be called, which is the lowest elevation and typically the warmest. And that's where you find most of the Grenache grown. Um, if you grow your grapes in all these regions, you're just Rioja. If you grow it specifically in Rioja Alta, as of 2017, you label your wine as Rioja Alta. If you grow your wine specifically, the next closest major town to them is the town of Aro, um, which is, I think it's the capital of Rioja Alta. But they, um, if you grow your grapes all in Aro, then you call your wine Aro. And there's another level called Vineiro Singular, Unique Vineyard. And this is something that was created in 2017. This is dedicated for wines that are single vineyard production. Um, and this is what they produce. There's only four single vineyard wineries, like four or five, according to the winemaker, I, I spoke to him uh, a few weeks ago um, in Rioja that are wineries that just have one plot of land. Um, doesn't make the wine better, but it is a really cool story that everything comes from one specific terroir. So in terms of their winemaking, they are old school with modernity. They let their grapes do their thing on the vines. Um, these are all bush vines. These are oh, actually, sorry, that's all right. Uh, those are the, those uh, alluvial soils that I talked about earlier. See how big they are. Um, and but, I've had this conversation with some of you here that have come in. There are some vines in Spain that are gnarly. They look like tree trunks, mm -hmm. but they're low to the ground. And then they create these delicate, delicious, tiny little berries that have this amazing concentration of fruit and texture that create a really, really amazing aged wine experience. Absolutely. And I mean, everything is done by hand. So imagine your job is to go through here and get on your knees and, and pick the grapes. It's not, um, it's not always the easiest job. So when it comes to the vineyards, they let the vines do their thing. When it comes to the winery, um, they make a much cleaner style. So they do stainless steel fermentation. The other wines have been fermented in oak. Um, and then they age their wine in uh, Berique. Uh, and to create this style called Crianza, which is legally has to be aged in Berique, um, it's a minimum of 12 months in the bottle or 12 months in the barrel and 12 months in the bottle, uh, which is what this wine is. Um, but they're a blend of 70% French oak and 30% American oak. American oak is traditionally what you would see in Spain because of the trade with the Americas. Uh, French oak really didn't make it into Spain until the, or the turn of the 20th century or the, maybe the 1880s, 1890s, mm -hmm. when you started seeing French producers coming into Spain to make wine when they had phylloxera, which is that insect that killed all the vines in Europe, started in France, all the Bordelais or the, the winemakers from Bordeaux would come into Spain and went to Rioja. Because Rioja has a really important area in Spain. There's a reason why it is the most well-known region in Spain. Um, Rioja was historically probably 2000 years ago, an important wine growing region in Spain. 
Um, it was one of the first regions in the world uh, to delineate specific laws within a region long before the French appellation system came on. Um, and it was the crossroads for Northern Spain. So, and this is the thing about wine regions in general, uh, at least in Europe, they didn't grow grapes in Alsace or in Burgundy or in Bordeaux or in the Cote or Rioja because it was going to be a great place to grow grapes. In fact, typically, um, in the case of Burgundy, for example, uh, it's a terrible climate to grow food. Right. And it's really challenging like, to grow like product to eat or produce to eat. And it was really challenging to grow grapes. But that land was given to the monks by the kings because the kings thought, well, if you can feed the poor and the poor don't need us as the monarchs, so you can have Burgundy and they made grapes uh, and they made some beautiful wines out of it. But if you controlled Rioja, you controlled Northern Spain. If you controlled Champagne, you controlled Northern France because those were all the crossroads. And so when uh, conquerors came in, either the Phoenicians or the Celts or the Romans, especially the Romans, when they started planting their varietals, they always planted the varietals in the most strategic area they possibly could because that's what the soldiers drank because they couldn't drink the water even then. So um, Rioja historically is, is such an important area in Spain. Um, but I really love this kind of concept that this winery has between old world, new world. Mm. It still has rusticity to it. It still is Rioja. You still get this kind of almost like burnt cinnamon mm. um, kind of oxidized fruit thing that's really beautiful and, and kind of unctuous aromatically. But it's also, uh, there's a delicate perfumed aspect to this wine as well with really soft tannins, which is really beautiful. Now we can do that. And I do find that with lots of crayons they tend to be more on that medium bodied style. Um, you know, they, people looking for Pinot Noir, I'll pivot a lot to a Crianza versus a Reserva. Reserva in the region is actually classified as being aged and held back for three years before being released. And that one will definitely, even though it's from the same producer and they're typically using the similar vineyards and the similar um, blend breakdown, it lands on your palate completely differently, more like a dusty Cabernet. Um, and then you have an, uh, even more of a classification for Grand Reserva, which is held back um, on average about five years before being released. So Rioja, you can experience a myriad style of flavors just by one producer. So it's a really, really complex region. It's a really beautiful region. And um, I really have a good time in, in Rioja in general, just getting one of each and then putting that on the table because it'll the Crianzas will work in the beginning of the meal. The Reservas will work in the middle of the meal. And then the, the Grand Reservas are a perfect end to um, any pairing. That's, I, I love that you said kind of like a dustier cab on the palate. I was at a blind tasting a couple of weeks ago and I had a wine that I was convinced it was Rioja. Like this is Rioja. And it was an older, it wasn't cab, it was an older Alexander Valley um, Merlot from, from Northern Sonoma. Oh yeah. And I was like, it blew my mind. Like I, I can't believe that I totally got this wrong, but in my head, I also drink mostly European wines. So it's easy to fool me on California, but, um, but I, yeah, it totally has that, that style to it. So if you yeah. are a cab lover, wines from Spain or you have cab lovers coming, but you have people that like Pinot Noir. Once again, it's not terribly high in tannin. Um, you get some nice acidity, but it's not overly acidic. These are wines that work really well. And in terms of food, I just picked some some pretty classic things you might find in Rioja. So, you know, red wine and fish, you can't have it. Well, they will in Spain. Um, this is this would be a classic dish, a classic cod dish in Spain uh, with some tomatoes. 
uh, paella, for example, I went to a friend's house who was making this paella uh, de Valencia, which is all seafood. And I brought, I brought an Italian wine, uh, Cinque Terre, which is this really great white wine from Ligoria. And he's like, okay, we'll, we'll drink that, but that's not what we drink. That's not what we drink in Spain. It's red wine mm-hmm. um, with seafood. You go to the Mediterranean, you go to Emporda in Spain, and you might have white wine as an aperitif, but when your food comes and you're eating seafood, you're drinking red wine mm-hmm. uh, because that's just, that's just what they do. Um, some suckling pig, lamb is like a peanut butter jelly kind of combination. Uh, so if you're doing lamb over the holidays, Rioja is such a beautiful thing. Such a beautiful it's thing. It's great with octopus. And they always say you don't do vegetables in Spain. Oh. They do, but they're smaller <laughs> little sides. Um, but like uh, pinaca or spinach with some garbanzos and then potatas bravas, which are really, they're way better than French fries. Potatas bravas, if anyone, you know the restaurant, you know the aiolis, it's addicting. And every single staff member that works at those restaurants, that's what we eat when we're <laughs> when we have to move on to another hour of, of service that we didn't expect and we're getting a little hungry. Patatas bravas and then the um, uh, hamburguesas de gambas, the shrimp burgers. Those are definitely getting ordered for the staff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not uncommon for people to go to a Spanish restaurant and drink even heavier, richer wines from Rioja and have like uh, gamba salajillo mm. um, or corroquetas of salmon or, or, or whatever. Like, you know, it's it's because we're not just, especially with wines like this, we're not really talking about tannin. It's not Nebbiolo, which is a tannic varietal. It's not Cabernet Sauvignon, which can be a tannic varietal. Mm-hmm. Or it's like an aged cab when it loses tannin and becomes a little dustier. Um, these are things that work well with seafood. And obviously, I mean, there's nothing really richer for me in terms of flavor than a braised lamb. Mm. Um, so it, it works with everything. And then we're going off now to the holidays because it is... What was next week again? It was some someday, right? Um, some day where we gather with people to drink and eat. So, and some folks. Mm-hmm. Can I just say a little funny little tidbit? Which because I worked in um, I worked in a movie theater for quite a long time in my youth. The busiest concession day in movie theaters. This is a true fact. Is Thanksgiving the busiest concession day? You wouldn't think that because there's so much food consumed, but. Candy, popcorn, everyone goes to see their releases. I worked there when Harry Potter and all the Lord of the Rings came out. And it was literally the busiest day in concession of the year is Thanksgiving. Everyone eats during the day and then their dinner is popcorn and candy at nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, just quickly too, before we, we pop on to the next wine, what did you guys think of the Rioja? Have some of you had uh, Rioja wines that maybe you thought were a little bit bigger and maybe not as fruit forward? All right. How many uh, do we have experience with Rioja wines here? Yeah. That, I'm probably guilty of that. <laughs> but, you know, the one thing that I enjoy is just like you explore a different chef, you know, you don't eat the pizza at the same place every single time. And, you know, you when you go to... Um, a different city or you travel somewhere, you usually try those similar flavor profiles. And that's what I like to do with Rioja. Rioja, because of, you know, the history that he's described, you can just experience different, what I, what I think are Michelin star chefs making some really beautiful, um, you know, experiences for us. So it's just kind of fun to go through the different producers, vintages as well. Um, and then also a little tidbit, that I like to tell people about Rioja is there is a tax that you do have to 
pay for to have it say Crianza Reserva, Grand Reserva, that the winemaker has to do to be able to release the wine. So every once in a while, you will have a winemaker that will age it for five years, but label it as a Reserva because they want you to drink the wine. They have more coming next year. So that's, that's, it's a little tidbit for when you're going from the Grand Reservas to the Reservas. Look at where the aging is and then maybe take a look at the back of the bottle. You might have one that's been aged for a little bit longer and get some really good value there. Oh, yeah. Vino yeah. Tondoni does that quite a bit. Like yeah. The Vino Cubillo is aged like a Grand Reserva and it's released as a Crianza and it's in the Crianza price point, which yeah. is pretty fantastic. So um, yeah, next week is, I guess, uh, Thanksgiving and I'm sure there's uh, a lot of amazing Beaujolais Nouveau upstairs and Beaujolais Village. Um, and we have something similar, but not quite. And I want to talk a little bit about the story of Beaujolais in a, in a second and why is this a big Thanksgiving wine? There are a lot of reasons, but there's also some marketing involved too. And I'll talk about that in a, in a minute. So where are we located? So if you remember, Alsace was up in the north um, east. We're further south, just south of Burgundy, just north of Cotarone, just outside of the city of Lyon. Um, there we are right there. So because we get influences from the uh, Mistrals, we get influences from the Mediterranean, we have the Alps, and we have the Massaf Central, which are their central mountains, they're white mountains, basically. Um, we are right there in the center. And in Burgundy, the, the climate can be really challenging, but we're further south here, so we're getting a warmer climate. Um, it's much more relaxed and makes wines that are typically fruity. But our soils are really cool. These are granitic soils and they're pink granite. This is actually not where this wine comes from, but I just love this picture. This is a village called Moulinavant, which means the windmill, because mm -hmm. when the region got its Appalachian name, it was the same year this windmill became an historic landmark or our UNESCO World Heritage Site, rather. And so they decided they were going to name their village after this windmill. Um, but the soils here are perfect for our grape and our grape is Gamay. And um, in Burgundy, I'll tell, tell a quick story. Gamay was planted in, in the region of Burgundy where you find Pinot Noir and Chardonnay for hundreds of years until the 15th century when um, the Duke, uh, Philip the Bold, had a really bad hangover to Gamay mm -hmm. and was so upset by it that he had all the Gamay ripped up um, and they moved it all to the Beaujolais region. But what they didn't realize when they moved it to Beaujolais was that the climate was warmer, so it developed more fruit, more complexity, but also they had these granitic soils where, you know, as Cassandra mentioned, the soils in Burgundy are really complex, but the main soils you find are limestone, which gives finesse, and clay, which gives a little bit of body and acidity. Uh, it doesn't do well for, for Gamay, but these granitic soils do wonders for, for Gamay. So we're going to go back in ancient history. Um, guy in the top right there is Julius Caesar. Uh, when he took over the Rome, um, moved into France, uh, he started in a little village we call Marseille, but it was at the time called Massalia, which was a Celtic and Greek stronghold. He took it over, went up the Rhone River and started planting grapes in the Cote Rhone and in the Burgundy region and found uh, some plots that they, he really liked including that guy right there. His name is Brulius, and he was a uh, Roman soldier or centurion, became the first governor of the Beaujolais region, and they named the region after him, which is where our wine comes from, called Brulli, uh, or Brui, rather. So the I double L in French is like a Y, like the double L in Spanish. Um, this is actually a little mountain called Mont Brui, and 
uh, they pretty much started naming naming a lot of villages after some of the, the soldiers. So there's a village in Beaujolais called Juliness, which is Julius Caesar. Uh, there's a village in Beaujolais called Fleury. People think it's because the wines are really floral. They are floral, but it was named after a Roman centurion by the name, a legionnaire by the name of Florus, and then Brui made up named after after Brulius. Um, but I think that the Roman Empire didn't quite fall the way we think it did. In around the 300 AD, our, our, um, Emperor Constantine became Christian, and a lot of those Roman soldiers traded their swords for crosses and their shields for robes. And we now have Benedictine, Benedictine monks, and they started planting throughout Burgundy and throughout the Beaujolais region. Um, and they were really the main growers throughout uh, throughout Burgundy. Um, but what was really, or Beaujolais rather, but was the big change for um, Beaujolais really happened in the 1850s when this city to the top left is um, called uh, uh, Lyon, a very famous city just south of the Beaujolais region. And in Lyon, uh, right around the 1840s, 1820s, um, they levied a hefty tax on all the wines other than Beaujolais. And so the wines of Beaujolais, actually, you can just kind of skip through because the wine, this will just highlight the other things there. So the wines of Beaujolais became really famous. They found out that they really loved it with the cuisine of Lyon because the cuisine of Lyon is right in between what they call the cuisine de uh, beurre, the food of butter from the northern part of France and uh, cuisine de oil or the, the food of oil which is the southern part of France, the Mediterranean, and it all comes together in Lyon. There are more Michelin star restaurants in Lyon than any other part of France, more than Paris. Um, there's, I think they're the most Michelin star restaurants in the world um, because it connects these two, the north and the south together. Um, in the 1850s, the trains came along and took Beaujolais all the way to Paris, where people fell in love with Beaujolais Nouveau. Beaujolais Nouveau was the first release of Beaujolais basically to celebrate the harvest, but now it's about 70% of all production in Beaujolais. And what I think is interesting about that is that Beaujolais Nouveau after a year is, not that it's not drinkable, but they're not as enjoyable. I actually had one earlier today and they're really fun, really fresh. Um, it was initially done as a celebration of the harvest, but it became so popular that everybody wanted to drink Beaujolais Nouveau. Um, and so for, well, actually it was in the, eight, in the 1950s, they made the second Thursday of each November, International Beaujolais Month, or Bo International Beaujolais Day. And that was kind of how it was until someone in French marketing realized, wait a minute, Americans are buying a lot of wine on the third Thursday of each November. And because, you know, when Cassandra sells a lot of wine, we send her more wine or we, you know, she, we probably send a lot of wine to you this week, right? <laughs> Sorry. And okay. um, uh, we're getting all prepared for <laughs> you guys coming on back in. And so, you know, when, when the, the French, you know, are, yes, they're, they're kind of democratic socialist country, but they are business people, especially with wine. They are, they are savvy business people. And they would say, oh, our sales are huge this month because it correlates with Thanksgiving. And so in the 1980s, they changed International Beaujolais Day, Nouveau Day, to the third Thursday of each month, which is actually today, which is why I didn't want to have Beaujolais Nouveau because I want to drink some Cru Beaujolais. We can go to the next one. So there are 
actually four styles of Beaujolais. There's only three in this picture, but Beaujolais Nouveau. Um, just quickly, how is this? How are these wines made? It's with a process called uh, semi-carbonic maceration. Basically, what they do is they take all of their grapes, they put them in a big vat, the grapes on top with gravity, crush the grapes in the bottom. There's natural yeast on those grape skins. And uh, when those grapes in the bottom burst, they start to ferment. And then carbon dioxide goes up the tank and it creates a chain reaction. And so the grapes on the top are push pushing the grapes in the middle and the grapes in the bottom with carbon dioxide are pushing the grapes in the middle and they all kind of coalesce to the center and then they start bursting and fermenting inside out. Um, and it creates a, a style of wine that's kind of fruity. It's a little, uh, not sweeter, but it's fruitier, fruit it's a little forward. lighter, fruit forward, exactly. Yeah. Um, Beaujolais, uh, Beaujolais Nouveau is mostly down the Southern part of the Beaujolais region where it's clay and limestone, which makes kind of more of a simple, straightforward style wine. Beaujolais Village, you see quite a bit. Luigiotto makes a fantastic one. Um, here we are granitic soils. Everything is hand harvested. Um, actually, Beaujolais Nouveau, everything is hand harvested for the amount of wine they produce. That's it's crazy. It's amazing that it's all, it was all hand harvested about a month ago. Right. But, um, and it's upstairs now. Um, <laughs> so now we're in granite soils and we're getting um, more of a continental climate. And then the last, which is what we have, is the Cru Beaujolais. So there are 10 villages in Beaujolais that are allowed to just put the name of the village on it. Morgon being one of them, Moulin Avant, um, and Bruy are probably the most famous villages. And this is, um, to me, one of the most impressive style gamets around. Uh, mm -hmm. This is vinified just like regular wine. They're not doing that same method where it's on a, everything is you know put together in the tank. They're destemming their fruit. They're crushing their fruit. They're treating it like they like you would treat great Cabernet from Bordeaux or great Pinot Noir from from Burgundy, um, and then our wine is aged in oak from there. So it is an actual chateau. Sometimes you see chateau, and and yeah, the chateau is basically just the big house. But the traditional chateaus in France was basically you had your winery in the center of your vineyards or your farm, and that's what this is. And you don't see that very often. So it's all coming from one estate that faces that famous Bruy Hill right there. Everything is once again, organically farmed, open top fermentation, biodynamic farming as well. They use horses. Um, horses um, are bred basically to work, but they also you know, bring natural compost and manure into the, into the winery. And then everything is aged in uh, oak barrel from there. So it's treated like a serious wine. And then for food, it really is, to me, one of the most iconic holiday wines. Um, so the tannic structure, that kind of like a little bit of tart berry feel on the mid palate to finish is great with um, cranberry. You get some nice acidity to it, which cuts through. That's actually a deep fried turkey. Um, but you get some soft, sweet aromas, which is great for fall vegetables and um, chucuterie and cheese as well. I love the smokiness on this. Mm -hmm. I'm not typically a person that enjoys smokiness because of like cilantro tastes like soap to me. It's very upsetting. So it's right. I know. And Ryan will constantly try to get me to taste scotch. And I look at him every time and I'm like, I really want to appreciate this for you. Unfortunately, biologically, I'm not allowed to. So, <laughs> but for me, oak, you know, and I think that's sometimes what helps me balance kind of what's coming out into the market because 
as soon as I taste and I, you know, taste something, I can pick up that oak right away. And whether it's pleasing or whether it's, you know, there for the fruit or it's there for texture. And the one thing I love about Gamay, it's a way for me to appreciate smokiness, just like bacon. Bacon is smoked, you know, and that's, it's got that saltiness to it. But this, I always kind of think if you wrapped a banana bread in wet leather, that's kind of what's happening here a little bit. And I know that's a very strange description and I have strange descriptions all the time, but it's more of, I don't always, um, you know, correlate smells and flavor profiles always together. Guinness to me tastes exactly like the way if you were driving through a construction road construction and they were laying wet tar, that's what it tastes like on my palate. That's what it reminds me of. So for this, that's what it kind of, I grew up, um, sometimes uh, working in a horse barn from time to time. And when you take that, when, you know, when it's raining out and you take that saddle off, it has a particular smell to it of leather. It's not a fresh leather. When you open up, you know, the bag that has the fresh leather jacket to it, it's a little bit worn and it has a different a smell to it. And that can kind of remind you, because whenever I smell that, I, rem- I put myself back into those horse barns. It probably came from that horse that we saw in the other picture. Probably, you probably, know. yeah. That's the, t- the terroir they would say yeah, in France. exactly. <laughs> and then the texture and, you know, some, you know, banana is sweet. It's sweet and it's creamy, similar to cashews. Cashews can come out in some sherries that you taste as a sweetness. Um, and you can have fruit flavors and sweetness. There's a myriad of sweetnesses that you can have. And I think a creamy texture to it, um, which sometimes I get with, uh, you know, with the winemaking style of this, it almost has, it's not 1% milk. It's not whole milk, but it's kind of like 2% milk. It does kind of have a little bit of a, a weight that kind of hangs out on your palate. And grilled vegetables, acorn squash, you know, all of those rustic kind of harvest vegetables that you get. I love it with Gamay. Gamay is one of my favorite uh, end of summer into fall wines because you have a lot of um, different, you know, kind of mold flavors that are all coming together. And Gamay, while it's medium bodied, it doesn't have a huge high volume of flavor. It's just pretty much what we've been talking about all day, which is bringing out some excited flavors from what you're working with. Exactly. And these wines can age quite a while. I had um, a bottle I opened up from 2015 of a single vineyard from a different producer, um, Chateau de Jacques, which is even richer than this. And um, the wine was still too young. And there, there are a lot of you know, wines from, from California or, or from you know, other parts of Europe where they're starting to fade. And you're looking at wines that are in that mid 20s and right um that you can buy and sell her and drink 10 years from now and they're fantastic what does everybody think of the gamay good right anybody have a favorite tonight uh this was 2018 so it's still pretty young yeah Any any uh, thoughts on the on the gamay? Yeah. So good. <laughs> Pork too. Pork is a fantastic pairing with this. Yeah. Well, we are at that time. It is time to wrap up. I just wanted to thank everybody for coming tonight, both on Facebook. We appreciate you guys joining us. And especially the folks that are in-house for us tonight. It is so lovely to see you guys. 
Um, and Manny, especially Manny, again, is one of my favorite educators. He brings not just wine, he brings culture, he brings, you know, an essence to them and always knows exactly what I'm looking for in wines, which is one of my favorites. So I hope you guys got some good food pairings tonight. Um, all the wines, when you head upstairs, they're going to be on an Ikea shelf when you pop up. They're 20% off, whether you buy them online or you buy them in the store. Um, and the next tasting we will have is going to be on December 2nd. We will be doing sake. So we're going to be doing sake in two parts. We're going to be doing it at the beginning of December. And then I'm going to be doing another one at the end of January just to kind of uh, get all of those going. And then we have an Italian seminar. And as I've stated a couple of times before, we do have not a midnight showing, but a midnight cellaring that might be happening here in mid-December, if you guys can figure out that one. I'm, I'm just saying that there might be some midnight cellaring happening here in the metro. So look out for that one. But thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you, Manny. Awesome. And we'll see you guys everybody. next time, okay? Bye, everybody on Facebook. Cheers. Yeah.